continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I don't often uh, have fiction writers on the show, partly because I don't have that much time to read fiction, which is kind of a lame excuse because I really enjoy reading fiction. But when I do read fiction, I often read old fiction because, frankly, a lot of the time when I read fiction, I turn to it not quite for escapism. I, I like to read, you know, serious books, uh, uh, you know, beautifully written books, uh, classic pieces of literature, but there's still a sense of uh, leaving the modern world, which I quite enjoy about um, about reading fiction, and uh, and which is another reason that I, I spend a lot of time reading uh, not quite genre literature again, but stuff that approaches the uh, the surreal, the weird, the fantastic, the bizarre. Uh, because again, I I delight in the sense that uh, the world is not quite what it seems, and that if you look at it the right or possibly the wrong way, that uh, gaps open up, possibilities emerge, uh, some of them marvelous, some of them uh, a bit unnerving. Um, This week, I'm really happy to have uh, a writer, not just of fiction, but of nonfiction as well, but known mostly for her, her fiction, Miranda Mellis, who I've met uh, many years ago, used to live in San Francisco and now teaches up in Evergreen, so gets to live in the beautiful forests of the Northwest. Rainy, but nonetheless, gorgeous place. Um, And I've been rereading her work, some of her work in preparation for this, and and one of the things that I I love about it, uh, and I'm going to be particularly talking about the, here, the, the earlier her earlier works that came out in, uh, you know, about six, seven years ago, uh, the collection None of This is Real, uh, a, a marvelous a short book called The Spokes, uh, and her first book, which got a lot of attention, I think it's the first um, short novel, The Revisionist. Um, what's wonderful about, about these things for me is that they give me both. They give me the sense that there is this mysterious other world, that there's a kind of um, allegorical overtone to the ordinary objects of the world. And I have that sense that I'm in the slipstream uh, of literature that, that tugs against naive realism, which I don't really believe in philosophically or uh, existentially. Uh, and yet it is also, in some sense, the world that we live in. Uh, and, and reading these books, even though in some sense they take place in another world, in the Spokes, for example, we go to visit li- essentially Limbo, where the character wanders and finds the shade of her uh, dead circus-performing mother, and there's these extraordinary descriptions, not so much, again, not at all genre, juicy narrative crap, but, but these evocative allegorical moments, but in the cracks of the mystery, in the cracks of, these, uh, of this enchanted feeling, I recognize precisely the everyday that, that we're living in with all of its gruesome political pressures, the terrors of climate change, the, the sense of pressure and uh, uh, of kind of... Um, loss of, uh, of direction in the sort of social media landscape and the, the sort of breakdown of civility, the, the collapse of America. I mean, all that stuff that you kind of, 
you got you, in a way you have to work hard to avoid if you're paying attention to the ordinary world. And it's not that this stuff comes up in her work as some kind of um, obvious uh, political message or some kind of return of like the world we're supposed to be paying attention to, but it's rather that her very at- uh, attention to uh, the marvelous, the occult, the possible, the strange is part of the very process of reckoning with our actual historical condition right now. Uh, And that tension is very tough to pull off. And um, I find it very haunting because I'm, I'm both, again, enchanted and forced to look from a different angle at some of the day-to-day stresses, concerns, worries, intellectual critical problems, uh, irresolvable, you know, uh, issues, identities that that inevitably come as we're trying to make our way, or at least as I'm trying to make my way through uh, our contemporary crisis. Um, So for that reason alone, uh, I I think she, she belongs on expanding mind in terms of uh, kind of striking the bell of many of the topics that we talk about. Uh, But she's also just a wonderful thinker and essayist about all manner of topics in addition to fiction. So with no further ado, Miranda, thanks for for joining me on Expanding Mind. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for having me. Well, I, I wanted to start off talking about the uh, the qualities, and it's it's probably a little bit less true of the of your more recent stuff. Although it, there's always this kind of element where you feel like you're reading something that's more like a a, a parable, a a fable, an allegory. There's some sort of not real, not totally available, accessible kind of very anti-New Yorker prose. Um, what is it about that that form? That, and yet I know that you're, again, driven by these very pressing concerns about our world uh, environmentally, socially, politically. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of your, your work and your thought. What is it about the form of the kind of the parable or the fable or the... the the sort of almost uh, fairy story, but with strange language that makes you realize that you're reading something that's a bit different, that's a bit arcane. What is it about that form that lets you work out how you're feeling and thinking about these very uh, real and significant matters that are also of concern? Yeah. Well, thank you for the question. So you, you mentioned earlier this concept of naive realism um, and and there's this this kind of I think conventional dichotomy or something we have this sense that our political problems and our environmental problems and our social problems kind of exist in in the realm of something something like the real you know whereas what we think of as being um, you know the the marvelous or the fantastical is somewhere very nearby, but um, but not but but hovering a little bit away from all of that. And I think one of the things I'm trying to get at um, is my own sort of felt sense, for whatever reason, um, that those things are not at all different. Um, you know that the that 
the what we take to be sort of the the realism of the political is is just um, kind of you know striated by irrationality <laughs> and and that that in some way if we can take you know what I recently heard the um, astrobiologist Adam Frank describe as the ten thousand light year view you know the sort of noticing, for example, that all these um, stars have exoplanets and kind of just moving out a little bit, like broadening our scale, whether going into the very small or into the very large, just doing a scale shift or a perspective shift, um, that we we begin to see see the way that all of the things that we take to be our ordinary situation are very much stories um, and, you know, and in, in that sense, you know, we're just sort of picking up from others and from stories how to feel and think about our situation. Um, and so in, in that way, I guess I think about the parable or the allegory um, or fiction generally as being maybe a kind of affordance, you know, to maybe allow us to, or a political affordance to maybe allow us to sort of see, um, to see where we are in different in a different way and also to see that other that there are other possibilities um you know yeah i mean w one of the ways i i think about it I mean, even just now when you talked about the you know we think about politics in terms of the real or, or realism or being realistic and i even when you said that i kind of like i, I recognize a pattern that i see in myself sometimes because i read a lot of news and so i read a lot of you know material that's that's written or, or opinion pages or whatever that are written in a very kind of you know rational we got to work this out and that here just just doesn't make sense we got to do this da, 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 you know like very kind of you know realistic world point of view and i realize sometimes how there's a kind of secret sort of story that's being foisted upon you in that very mode which is that uh you know okay, all these, uh, you know, uh, touchy-feely feelings and all this sort of idea of how things could be, well, that's just not the world we actually live in. So if you're really going to kind of just be honest with the situation, then it makes more sense to consider X, Y, and Z. And not to say that there's an inherent conservatism in being realistic. There could be, depending on your ideals and motive, motives, it could go in many directions. Um, but there is a strange kind of, uh, I don't know, there's like an ideology of realism that yeah. even if you're not trying to think like, I'm a rational person, I'm not going to think irrationally, I'm just going to make my political decisions based on reason, even if you're not doing that, being that hardcore, just sort of imbibing that world, you, you lose touch with the uncanniness of the political or the uncanniness of the ecological crisis that's in our face. And so it's a weird way of both detaching and also, I think in some ways, kind of, not, if not becoming more conservative, but just being, just delimiting the space where you can move to create an illusion of rational control and choice. Yeah, yeah. And I think in that way, you know, you say there's an ideology of, of realism that somehow that ideology has captured reason itself or has captured rationality in a way that is not 
real, right? Like a higher order realism or a higher order pragmatism um, or a higher order rationalism um, doesn't operate that way. A higher order rationalism tells us that there are emergent properties, that things are nonlinear, that um, the, 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 the kind of conventional boundedness of what we call the political is really um, fluid. Um, so, you know, I, I wonder about, you know, what, what other kind of modalities could inform, could inform what we call the political, um, you know, if, um, for example, you and I are both, we both have long kind of history with Buddhist teachings. And one of the things I've been thinking about, um, is, the tenet of not knowing and whether what 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 can not knowing provide the political as an antidote um where the what you know what you described as the ideology of of realism that that kind of has a grip on the political um has to do with with you know this kind of like incredibly artificial um, perpetual reproduction of um, statements by by you know the, the subjects who know or something like that, um, where language becomes so emptied out. So it's not just not knowing, but it's the poetic. Like where, what would a political that's informed by 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 the understandings of poetics um, look yeah. like? Yeah, yeah, I can and I can think about that. I mean, right now, what's popping in my mind particularly are, are is is climate change, which is not. I mean, it is the political in certain ways, but there's another sort of dimension to it uh, that maybe re requires a slightly different language. But it, there, it's it's so evident that part of what the issue is 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 the fact that even people who aren't, you know, jumping on the denial bandwagon, even people who recognize the issue, there's just you you don't know where to put it. And I, I keep thinking about you know, a, a influence on both of us is, is the work of, of Timothy Morton and the way he talks about the uncanniness of getting into your car and turning on your car to go get milk from the store or whatever, and that you're contributing to global warming in that act, because it doesn't make any sense. You're just turning on your car. It's just one car. What's the big deal? Whatever. But the fact that we are part of these much larger forces and forms that are themselves engaging with even larger and more incomprehensible things like global warming, which we can't really think about. We can think about a tornado over here. We can think about the weather's hotter. We can think about uh, politics in Washington, but we can't really think about the climate, the global climate as a, as a whole. So there's invariably a kind of uncanniness. And so if we think that we get in touch with this issue purely through reason, purely through statistics, through making arguments, through making sure that, that scientists are making decisions because they actually, they're more regional, they have more access to, to rational operations than ordinary citizens do. We're only going to get so far. It's, it's not really until you take on the weirding of global warming as a phenomenological existential experience that we have individually and culturally and really kind of... I don't want to say accept that, but begin to work within that space of 
poetry, of uncanniness, of the weird, of uh, uh, the un- you know the the unnerving condition of it, and to recognize that that existential quality, which is more like fiction, it's more like you know, it's more like Stranger Things than it is like a documentary about the planet Earth. Uh, <laughs> that that's actually where we live and engage this situation. And so if we just keep putting that off into mere, you know, subjective feelings or fictions or whatever, I, I don't see how we, we really accept the situation we are. And I think you could say the same thing about social media and the way technology and propaganda are changing, you know, consensus reality. But th- that's a different conversation. Just just to sort of say that I, I think the weird is, uh, which is my kind of term for this non-rational but still part of a larger rational or reasonable way of looking at the world that it, it's really a, a portal into scary places but places without which we are n- not going to get out of the the trance of of naive realism yeah and i think so part of you know this this um concept of the hyper object and of our entanglement and of how the hyper object describes this I love this, like the way that Morton talks about it, it being this viscous and sticking to us, you know, this entanglement that we're, we're trying to look at a problem that we're, that we're situated within, that we can't, we're embedded within. And so I've been thinking about this actually with, um, in relation to, to meditation practice where, you know, there's this slowing down to observe entanglement, right? And, and kind of um, disidentify, um, or the paradox of sort of being able to see that one is not willing, whatever it is that's going on, and it's going on nonetheless, and um, completely structuring, structuring you, but it's impermanent. Um, And so I guess, you know, with, with regards to fiction as a practice, or as a political affordance, this sort of um, primary kind of move, I guess you would say, of the fiction writer um, is to put yourself in the place of another, you know, to like purposely entangle yourself, um, to, um, to envision what their tasks are, you know, to, uh, to imagine their movements, to, um, to, you know, be with a fellow being in their in their struggle to imagine their 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 struggle, um, and in that way, like kind of intentionally um, entangle yourself and stick yourself, um, s- stick your nose into someone else's business. <laughs> um, so I see that as being, you know, I mean that's an act of creativity, but it's also an um, an act of of empathy and of um, dissolving those, those borders intentionally and, and getting in, and there's some, there is something just uncanny about it, you know, about opening yourself up to that. So maybe in that way, you know, there's a question here about sensibilities and about, um, the incredible incommensurability, um, of sort of maybe what you might call like a, a political animal and, and, a um, I mean, this, this, I think, is one of the very real things that we have to also face. It's like there's this entanglement, but there's also this incommensurability um, maybe between 
people's experiences. Like we can put ourselves in the place of another, but we don't, that doesn't mean we now know, you know, um, what I can't know what your, what your life has been and, you know, what, yeah. what your experience has been on some level I can. So, so there's the sort of, um, you know, what is it like to be a bat controversy or something, right? It's ethically, I need to, for, you know, I take Kutsia's view that ethically I need to, um, I need to know that I can't imagine what it's like to be a bat. I can't cut myself off from the bat, but in the, in this other way, um, there is this incommensurability between these spheres. And that's what's really, that's part of what I find, well, what is so frustrating about our situation, right? Is like, how do we, um, maybe maybe we can't really um, solve politics with politics after all, but then what does that mean for people who are working, um, whose sensibility is, is, is totally, maybe that's their art, right? Is to be in that, um, yeah to see things that way um yeah i'm really i'm really struck by this this uh this idea because there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation about empathy and empathy as a you know sort of generally a progressive value in our current uh, strife uh, maybe a liberal value as well um and uh, i think we i've been sort of definitely wrestling this i think i suspect you as well even just recently with the way in which the um uh, the separation of families at the borders become this kind of event, and the, it's become a sca- whatever a scandal, uh, uh, an event, a, a a forced reckoning, and we're all sitting there drawn into this partly staged theater because even if you know we the, this is a policy that is happening and it is uh, something that is deeply upsetting and that and that uh, triggers many of our more basic kind of moral values, you know, like you get, you get right down to your core values with, with this kind of activity. At the same time, there's this weird sense that, okay, it's another one of these, uh, you know, mediated events that, that I can't entirely uh, take in its own terms. And so what it's brought up for me is partly a simultaneous need for empathy, which is partly about being able to connect through our entanglement to put ourselves in the place of the other, to use that that fictional imagination, but outside of the 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 unreal and and towards you know others, uh, right. genuine points of difference. And at the same time, it's not going to deliver a kind of uh, foundation. I don't think. Uh, at least in our, at least in the way it's politicized, and and in a way that relates to what you were saying about how you 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 have to act like you you can imagine what it is to be a bat, and yet you don't know, and you and that not knowing is not going to be filled in by science. It's not going to be filled in by some crazy mystical vision. It's not going to be filled in by studying, devoting your whole life to studying bats. There is this kind of opacity. Yeah. to things and to others. And we can't, I mean, you know, so maybe it's good for some people to be naive about that because it allows them to do other things that are very valuable. But once you kind of see that that bind, which is, again, something that Timothy Morton and other speculative realists talk about, this bind of, of simultaneously resonating with being in relation to absolutely needing to imagine some kind of 
con- communication or connection and and at the same time that being uh only going so far it's a very strange place to be and it's hard to act it's hard to know how to act within that that space and yet it seems to be part of what our moment is inviting at least some of us into yeah yes i i agree and i think that in fact that not knowing I mean, to me, humility is one of the most liberating of qualities. It's not a diminishment, you know. It is totally liberating. Um, and and that, that opacity that you're talking about, I mean, um, the post-colonial philosopher and poet um, Glissant talks about, he, said, he writes, I clamor for the right to opacity for everyone um, and, and kind of posits what he calls the poetics of relation founded in this opacity and this incommensurability that it's not um it's 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 not a problem you know on some level it's what the problem is is when we're trying to make um others be like us or we're trying to act as though people should be something transparent that i can see right through um you know and that it's it's illegibility that becomes the the unbearable problem for some people i guess that that you know that causes this othering that 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 then allows the, the the brutal monstrosity of putting children in cages you know and and um and so forth um but this this poetics of relation is to relate um relationships between opacities um <clears throat> um and that i think you know, so in that sense, so how could going back to kind of um, politics, like how can humility be a, be the be the grounding for our politics? Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I think about like it's so hard, it's so dark, and there's so many of the countervailing forces right now. You know, whether it's the you know drawing boundaries, the you know masters who know. Uh, you know, focused, empowered violence uh, that 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 feeds off of you know all these regressive tendencies in human identity that we could talk about sociologically or biologically or whatever. That it's it seems so kind of ch- childish or naive yeah. to be like resting. Oh, think oh, well, what's the politics of not knowing? What's the politics of of empathy without? Uh, uh, you know, claiming to be able to speak for the other, all these kinds of things. But what it reminds me of is kind of debates, which are, you know, debatable, but the debates about nonviolence as a, as a mass power, like how you can stop colonial empires with nonviolence. That doesn't make any sense. That you that's ridiculous. You can't stop a you know well armed colonial empire with with nonviolence. Well, in certain circumstances, maybe you can. And so the 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 absurdity around the delicacy of these political some of these political questions, in a way, has to be kind of embraced as that same sort of gesture uh, uh, as a as a nonviolent protest as an, as nonviolence as a as a principle ethical principle that over time ultimately makes you know uh makes a move so the humility there's there is some kind of place for that humility it seems impossible it seems absurd uh in some ways because it's such everything's going in the opposite direction 
I mean, right. you, I mean even normal, po- even like conventional global politics 20 years ago looks like, a, you know, a hippie fest of kumbaya compared to where we're at now. I mean, it's just absurd that, that it's right. so degenerated. And yet, in a way, that's what else you got than the impossibility of hope, because all of these things seem so relevant to me. These questions of humility, of of not knowing, how do you how do you speak and and not know at the same time? Yeah, right. And and when we we say it's childish, it's like it's it says something about how we're seeing things that kind of, in a sense, like I think what you're saying, you know, that that basic wisdom is something so beyond the pale, you know, um, and, and reflexivity, um, just the ability to stop and see, see how we're seeing and what assumptions we're bringing to the situation. Although I do feel like I see, I see that happening too in, 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 in various ways in the discourse and the public sort of spheres. Um, yeah, that the reflexivity is more available. That people are are more able, or just to recognize how they, their own thoughts and feelings and beliefs are are kind of located somewhere, and they have. Yeah, to... it feels like there's you know, um, there's a kind of public conversation, mainstream conversation happening that's very fraught, of course, about things like bias, you know, and what is bias, but you know, sort of the fact that we hold views that we don't know we hold or that we respond in ways that we don't will, you know? Um, and, and to, so to talk about it, even though in some ways it's, it's what Uwe Puerskin, the linguist would describe as a plastic word or a kind of word that starts to just mean nothing, you know, but, but to talk about it is to, is to, in a way to talk about reflexivity, you know, implicit bias, you know, something that is, is happening below the top shelves of consciousness, you know. Yeah, um, and it's it's a funny one too because that that I I've, I've I've been tracking that a little bit uh, lately, partly because I read that I think it was actually in the was it in the Times? I don't remember where. I think it was in the New York Times, where uh, there was an uh, article about you know um, bias and how it's it's sort of it's hardwired. There's evolutionary reasons for it. It's all the language of science psychobiology, um, you know, and so we've been studying where we can find this in the brain, and look, we, we can see that this particular area floods when people are shown pictures of the other side or whatever, you know, that kind of, you can imagine that the, the tests are, and kind of then coming down to basically saying, well, we can engineer this out, we might be able to engineer this out of people. Well. And then you're like, okay, so they, so like that's, that's like the, the whole zone of the unconscious whether we think of it as bias, as all of the kinds of biases that people talk about, confirmation bias, uh, virtue signaling. There's all of these weird little elements of, of sort of sociobiological unconscious thinking that are bubbling up into politics as kind of either weapons or as possible solutions. And that's, I think, important. To, we gotta, that's part of the way that we come to terms with the way in which we are biased, the way in which we, that it does help reflexivity, but it also often just gets plugged into some kind of weird, you know, technocratic solutionism, <laughs> which is almost equally, you know, disturbing. So it's like, it's like almost like, because it's another one of those binds where we have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge what we don't know, acknowledge the way that we're 
that we're biased, or let's say, but also take responsibility for it, even though in some sense we're not responsible for it because we're not aware of the mechanism. We didn't plant it there. We're not thinking in those terms, and yet it's there beneath the surface operating. And so you're back to the existential situation of like, do I have to take responsibility for that which I did not actually choose? Right. And I still think you do. But yeah. if, but most people, I don't think, want to do that. Yeah, well, I think it's it's really understandable how, how one might resist it, right? Because we're identified with our intentions. So if we're, you know, so if we're told that we're, we're sort of intending things that we don't intend or that we're having effects that not only we do we not intend them, we actually um, abjure them or abhor them. Um, you know, like when you were talking, when we were talking about entanglement um, with climate change or even racism, you know, like that there's this sense, um, well, but this is, you know, how can I be having these effects when I not only don't intend to, but I abhor these effects, um, you know, how, and it's, you know, because we, we, because we think that we're private beings or that language is somehow private, you know, um, and that we're not inhabited by everything and striated by everything that we exist within history and um, political structures and social structures. But I think, but I really, and this is where, again, I think like, um, the contemplative really has a lot to offer because there's um, the possibility of of disidentification of saying, okay, well, yeah, there even a moment of being able to see. And granted, it's a it's a long and arduous journey, but even a moment of being able to see, I, I haven't willed nearly almost anything I've thought. So of course, I could be having effects that I don't intend to. Have. Exactly. That I can't recognize because the mind is just churning out all these thoughts that I haven't intended. And the mouth opens and says things that are the opposite of what I mean and feel, you mm -hmm. know, um, or what I would want. And, and I mean, I think we're, you know, all this goes to sort of uh, greed, hatred and delusion, you know, our situation of ignorance and kind of questions of what it means to, to wake up. You know, and how, what are, and, and you talked about the technocratic, like wanting to, the scientistic, wanting to go right to, well, let's fix this broken machine, you know? Um, yeah. Well, what about, let's sit with this wounded animal, you yeah. know? <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Let's just, I often feel that way on the pill. You know, it's, it's great to hear you talk about meditation and, and, and the Dharma uh, because it's very, it seems very fresh from from me for, to hear hear you talk about it in these terms and to put it into politics in this way, because I think there's a lot. I mean, there's there's so many different, if you want to call them Western Buddhisms now. There's so many different ways that meditation is being framed and used and uh, abused, and uh, I, I mean, I think you're really right to point to. It's not about that it's going to make you better. It's not about that it's going to make you more efficient or maybe happier or whatever. That might happen, and that's cool. But as a tool of inquiry, an inquiry into this self, not the self that wants to be actualized, not the self that wants to be improved, not the self that wants to uh, you know, be liked, not the, all of those guys, 
but to but a, a tool of inquiry into seeing how those things arise mm-hmm. as a a space of some kind of again very tentative gentle will of the wisp almost but a, <laughs> still a space of a possibility for a different kind of politics a different kind of way of of connecting of, of being in the in the field of, of within which we are woven at a deeper level than all those selves that want to actualize the selves that want to improve the selves that want to master and and gather gather and gain attention which is the you know the mainstream game that's now just you know off the rails yeah well you know dogen says um to to treat the the that which wants gain and fame with the kind of compassion that you treat your family members with. (laughs) Like um, treat, treat, he says, treat um, the desire for fame um, as a, or fame itself as a sentient being deserving of compassion. I mean, you know, along with all those other selves um, and, you know, you were listing all those selves that come up and I, and I, you know, there's also the self that wants not to harm, right? Or wants not to cause harm. And how do we, as a practice, like kind of, I've been thinking about this. Um, I guess it's, you know, another way of describing it would be like ethical sublimation or something. Sort of how do we take those energies that you're talking about that our culture fosters um, and kind of use them as ingredients and coax them towards this other disposition, right? Like that there is also, along with all those other selves, this self that wants not to cause harm or wants to, you know, um, I don't know, just this very, um, what I think in in the Buddhist teachings is, is described as this kind of elemental awakened quality, like that when you see somebody that you don't know just stumble that you would automatically reach out to help them, you know? Or when somebody drops something, you just, and they can't reach it, you pick it up for them. These very simple moments of sort of, that show us this other self that wants to not harm. Um, and that everybody, you know, that that everybody experiences. And how do we, you know, like, there, how do we notice that? Kind of notice that, that um, simple response, um, that quality and kind of bring it into political i'm sure i sound incredibly naive i've been well i mean but i mean i think the whole conversation we're having is a way like it's like you know it's funny we started out making fun of naive realism and this is kind of like you know whatever realism is real unrealism you know weird realism naive weird realism Uh, but uh but yeah i i mean i i i think that 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 point that subtle place you're pointing to is really key. I mean, to me, it has a lot to do with with the body. That we, when you're actually sharing space with people, that at least I would like to think that more people have access to that sort of simple openness as a possibility than when we're, you know, reading a news feed. Uh, and that part of what's happening now is a kind of, you know, ferociously weaponized feedback loop of the abstract character of both language and media uh, really just kind of, you know, like exploding or imploding in a way that disconnects us from a lot of our 
let's say more embodied values mm-hmm. and you know i'm i am i am totally sure that many you know many people whose you know speech acts online i would say are more or less trolling in a different condition in a spontaneous and natural way would whatever pick up the drop thing or be this you know like be warm or at least open i would like to think that maybe i need to think that then maybe that's a a personal mythology because i can't quite accept that things are so hateful all the way all the way down to the ground but that then requires that space to return the space of physical interaction of the public and and of being able to move around like it's like it's easy for me to do in in my liberal you know enclave and you live in a, a liberal enclave but you know what 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 happens when i show up in rural you know iowa and go hey man what's going on let's be all brother you know it's a different it's suddenly a very different scene and you know that's all there like there's a lot of really positive values among conservative people in the united states i mean they're they're linked to other things that i find pr- some of them problematic and some of them horrible but those values are there and then in fact part of the resentment of conservatives against liberal enclaves and and you know the, the coastal elites etc is that they feel like they they don't even get any cred for the certain forms of values that are that i would say are positive in the right kind of framework um so it's yeah. but how to get there is so tough it's so tough yeah i mean i think part of the you know I'm brought to mind of a, a little book by Simone Weil called The Abolition of All Political Parties. It's such a great little pamphlet. And I mean, part of the problem is lang- the language, right? These categories, the quote unquote liberal enclave or the quote unquote conservatives or the right or the, I mean, what yeah. she said in this book is like, she she's just, she just, um, it's, a, it's a polemic really against political parties saying that we should be um, supporting um, kind of political agents and agencies based on the the actions they take and the work they do and the um, and not their affiliations and and kind of identity identities right like that the idea of the the, the right and the left um, you know these broad categories or we'll say we'll say Democrats and Republicans I mean how stuck are we in 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 those incredibly reified overdetermined categories where people kind of just upload these 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 identities and and then that kind of erases what you're describing which is all all these other kind of um you know um uh incredibly um complex differences and nuances and um, you know, it's like these these reified categories are are getting in the way, um, and and I I sort of like when after I read that Simone Weil, I just I felt like, you know, I I mean, I live in I live among trees, and I feel sort of like that's more informing for me than the notion of of liberalism. I'm also I also react to that um, because my mother used to my mother was. Uh, rather militant. And she used to say, scratch a liberal, find a fascist. <laughs> so I grew up with that, you know, but, and, you know, I grew up with sort of activists and, um, and, and in this kind of, I, you know, I guess like, um, 
identity of leftism, but I, but, but the attentiveness of kind of a contemplative practice or a writing practice, um, you know, calls on me, calls on one to ask, you know, what effects our descriptions and our categories have on our capacity to work on our problems. Um, and this is again, where kind of poetics and language and question of description, how are we, I had a student who recently wrote a, a great thesis about um, the history of in the nomenclature of invasion biology and kind of charted the correlation of rises of xenophobia with the rise of this nomenclature and was really like looking at how even the category invasive species might prevent us from seeing the ways in which a lot of species need to migrate because of climate change and how is our nomenclature getting in the way of us being able to see that what we call that it's on a case-by-case -case basis that there could be um, that, that species could be called invasive that are actually beneficial in, in all sorts of other ways. Um, so I don't know, it just seems so important to, to have that conversation too, right? You know? Absolutely. I mean, I'm just even reflecting, even as I, I went on my last little kind of point, how once I started to talk about these issues, it was just easier to pick up the, the well-used tokens of right, left, liberal, enclave, da, 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 like to make a point and it's just like I just I just can't help but being reflexive about my own mind right here, and particularly when I'm you know speaking in public, so I have to kind of watch it because you can't you know do you know talk about politics and you know in the public sphere is a little dicey, so it's yeah. just easier even if the very point I was trying to make was about getting to that place beneath these abstract categories that are causing so much harm. It's yeah. easier to describe that because you're not as exposed. You're 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 still in the op-ed landscape, you know, uh, which in, in a way the whole thing from you know right to left in those terms uh, is 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 all sort of maintaining that um, that uh, resistance to digging into these more ambiguous places where we're connected to people in all sorts of ways we can't name, all sorts of affective ways we don't, we only see in, in stories or dreams and, and, and can't language and, and certainly can't put on some kind of graph of uh, demographics. Yeah. And if, when, we, when we step back and look at things in kind of parable terms or mythic terms, it really all starts to look very, very different. Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, how, what it means to, to do that. I mean, there's, you know, one of the ways that I was thinking of earlier in the conversation um, was uh, uh, I, I was thinking about the way in which, not all the time, but I often consciously attempt to think in my own kind of animist way because it forces me to or encourages me, seduces me even sometimes, to acknowledge relationality where I was taught to 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 just operate instrumentally. So yeah. suddenly I have and and it, you know it's easy to do with with pets, you know, you can do it with horses, no problem. A, a, a tree that you love on your way to work, that's easy. You know, you, you start small and then you start realizing more and more that it takes you to increasingly inhuman places. 
and it 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 enforces humility to suddenly acknowledge that you know in a way even the technologies in the environment and all of these flows and and even the ugly plants and the what the ice plant that was brought here from south you know africa to like be in the suburbs and now it's escaped into the thing and you're like what do i what's my relation to this thing how do i okay invasive species yeah but there's this life form here that's doing its thing and how do i relate with that and it's also impossible it's like impossible like uh nonviolent resistance is impossible or that humility in our current discursive environment, a political environment is impossible. It's also impossible to acknowledge the sort of agency of all the things that we interact with. And yet it's a mythic mode, a a mode that draws from capacities for fiction, for dream, for visionary experience, for psychoactives. It draws from that. And yet it, it also has its own kind of politics, uh, the, the politics of the other, of, of, a, of a non-human other, as well as others that, that we're, we maybe don't know and don't relate with in the human realm, but, but more specifically in the kind of environmental realm. And, and to me, that's a very concrete place where the imagination, which we usually put off to the side, really can shift your relationality and even your sense of obligation, your sense of ethics, uh, as you think about, you know, a world that will only go forward as a, a, a whole variety of relations of humans and non-humans, not as humans controlling the show. Yes, absolutely. And what does description have to do with that? I mean, what is the difference between calling a bee a pollinator and calling a bee your brother, you know? Um, yeah. And, and what is the difference between defining ourselves as being on the right and being on the left and defining ourselves as as a species even if you know even if uh species is is a kind of also problematic category but you know and also as as an invasive species what if how do we take responsibility for ourselves as a species um living on this planet with all these other beings who we you know um I mean, I, I'm I'm just for projects that can, quote unquote, decenter the human in that sense. I think that's a more productive direction than kind of this constant reproduction of these reified categories of yeah. human politics. You know, um, I agree. I think that's that's part of the the issue is just the that's and that's partly where that the the technology enters is that on just on a really simple level that the explosion of information devices and uh, uh, smartphones and the internet everywhere and the addictive character of social media and gaming and all that is that, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by that world. I think there's great aspects to it. It's not like I'm just a straight neo-Luddite, but it's very obvious that once you enter into those circuits, you're just sort of flowing with essentially human signs Yes, they're technologically mediated by non-human technological others uh, who will become increasingly sprightly in the coming years. That will be interesting. But uh, it's still that you're so dis- you know, pulled out of all these other uh, relations all the time. So to and, and I see that on, on you know, on, on in, in term, it's so much so, you know, politics across the board. And and uh, the obsession with identity and with fixing identity and with defining identity and fighting through identity and and it's just 
it's just a very, uh, it's, it's a strange time to kind of locate oneself as the one who disidentifies <laughs> because it's like, where, what is the politics of disidentifying? Is it, does it, is it just a dropout politics? Is it just a localized politics? Because now I'm just in my body with my relations on a day-to-day basis with trees and local food providers and whatever. Uh, but what is that larger level uh, uh, that 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 has that disidentification to it? What does it mean to disidentify and be able to 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 affirm or try to work a politics on a on a large scale, the scale at which so many of our crises are already existing? Right. Yeah. It strikes me that there's something there about being able to be. Um, you know, to ask what serves or to, to ask what to, to be of service, to be able to be, to be disidentified such that one might be able to see what's needed, you know, um, does that allow us to see more and to respond, you know, to be able to respond when we're called upon to respond, to show up, to, to pitch in, you know, um, and if we're, if we're just really identified, um, overly identified with, with a position or with, um, a view. I mean, all these things, again, they seem to go to questions of view, you know? Um, well, we only have a, cu- a couple of minutes here and I, I realize that we've gone through this whole thing and, and I didn't, I had all these like kind of personal questions I wanted to ask you, <laughs> stuff you'd, stuff you'd thrown out of me. So I'm just going to put one, we, uh, which is that are you, have you, have you, it's sort of along the lines you've just been talking about, about service, uh, which is at some, at some point recently you were you were entering into a, a, ch- a chaplaincy program. Have, are you still are you still doing that? Yeah, I've just started doing that a, couple, a few months ago, um, and um, yeah, and it's 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 um, causing me to to take up a more a slightly more well definitely more formal study of things that I've been sort of engaging with on and off for a long time, very casually and informally, you know, to really do, um, I have to like study the precepts and write precept glosses. And, um, so it's particularly, it's a Zen Buddhist based, but interfaith chaplaincy program. Um, and I don't know what the outcome of that will be. I, I talked to a former student of mine, um, recently, and I told her about it and she said, well, it just seems like the same thing you've always been doing in a way as a teacher. Like it's not, I mean, is you teach, you've taught, like I think teaching is, is so much about witnessing and drawing out people's powers and potentials and really listening. Um, and I think chaplaincy is related. It, it just is, they're, they're different kind of um, responsibilities and environments. And I think my part of my draw to that has been to be able to possibly work in other in other environments, you know, um, be it in prisons or hospitals or else, you know, otherwise. Yeah, because yeah. I'm not sure how, you know, like I feel like maybe I'll be in academia for the rest of my life, but there's a way in which I've been feeling um, a draw to explore other possibilities. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, but so it's a nice it's a nice shift because it's uh, it's it's organic. It, it, it is coming out of things you've already been invested in, interested in. Uh, and yet it does open up uh, different spaces where 
um, the kinds of service and the kinds of encounters and the kinds of challenges and 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 uh, perceptions that you would have would be you know I can can only assume broader than teaching literature and critical theory and uh, you know a good a good college <laughs> you know it's a very different kind of situation um, yeah yeah it's a different kind of situation does it make you feel like more you're more of a Buddhist because you kind of have to be well I don't I don't know I mean again there's that identification thing um, I mean one of the uh, ceremonies that that happens in this program is you take Chukai, you, you receive the precepts and that and then you you that's some kind of consecration into the into the lineage. Um, I've always been so reluctant to uh, <laughs> to identify with with uh, with it, but I, I I don't you know I think because I I think of these teachings as being um, you know um, philosophical in some ways um, more than religious but i but i'm overcoming that and i'm 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 interested in kind of um the formal the formality the formalities observing the forms and ceremonies as it were um and and especially the collectivity of that the kind of ways in which doing that uh breaks you out of the kind of solitary mode and puts you into collective collectivity even at the level of collective movements you know collective um, ways of collective choreographies. Um, and I, I, I grew up really in a very, my mother, you know, religion is the opiate of the mass, very, you know, atheist kind of space. And so, but my, my sort of insight recently, um, in a, in a Zendo moving through various movements with other people in a ceremonial space was like, here, this is, um, this is collective, this is like this dance and it is inculcating this disposition towards collectivity in, in a way that sort of solitary practice doesn't do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to, we're going to have to uh, wind it up here. We're in our dialogue practice. Uh, 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 so Miranda, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us on, on Expanding Mind. Oh, thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure. All right, folks, uh, until next week, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.